So, Ray, thanks very much for taking the time to join us this evening. It's uh, good you've been able to get past all the quarantine rules and be able to make it to the UK. Um, so thank you very much. So, Ray, we've sent you some questions that we want to run past you tonight, especially in relation to evangelism. But we thought it might be helpful if you begin by sharing with us a little bit about your testimony, how you came to faith and uh, why you do what you do. Yeah, I was born twice in New Zealand. Um, been living in the U.S. for 30, uh, 30, 32 years, I think. They change it every year. Um, and the reason I came to Christ was a similar testimony to that of uh, Solomon. Uh, I attained everything I wanted to attain by the age of about 20 years old. I had my own business, um, my own house, car, wife, kid, total freedom to do what I wanted. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Now what do I do? Wait around to die. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm part of the ultimate statistic. And it was the analogy I used is that it was like I was standing in a line as people in front of me stepped off a thousand foot cliff. And I was thinking to myself, man, I wonder if there's any way to get out of this line. And I remember I was so concerned about the fact that death was going to snatch everything I held dear to me. I thought, well, the only thing I could do is try and live healthy and extend this life as long as I can. So I went to see a doctor to see what I should do as a young man to stay healthy. And I walked into his room and he was smoking a cigarette, looking like death warmed up. And he was dead three years later. And I really lost hope. And with Solomon, just cried in my heart, even though I was very happy. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And then I came to Christ six months later. God heard my cry. And I remember reading Matthew 5, 27, 28. You've heard it said by them of old, you shall not commit adultery. And the thought that penetrated my unregenerate mind was, sweet, I've never committed adultery. If there's a heaven, I'll make it there. And then I read the words of Jesus. But I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. It was like an arrow went, an arrow went right into my chest. I thought, I'm a dead man of God. See my thought life. And uh, on Judgment Day, I'll end up in hell. That's when I understood the cross. Never understood the cross until I saw my sin. Once I saw my sin, the cross made sense. Repented, put my trust in Jesus, found everlasting life, and from that very second became a mad maniac, a fanatic for the gospel. Right from the time I was saved, I began giving out gospel tracts to people, witnessing to people when I met them. Uh, not like a wide-eyed fanatic, but when I could, I'd make opportunity. Um, I got a bus that was, I think, 34-seater Bedford bus, and I put scripture around it. I put a big sign with scripture on it in front of our home. My sign wrote my car. I, uh, in front of my business, uh, I put John chapter 3, verses 1 to 16, and two-inch high professional lettering. I began opening a preaching in the local square. I got a printing press and put it in my home and printed gospel tracts. If anyone could be considered a religious crazy man in those days, it was me. Nowadays, I'm much worse. <laughs> well, Ray, it's, uh, it's definitely uh, interesting to hear what you have done and what you continue to do. And no hey, doubt people- hey, Josh, could I ask something? Can we unmute everybody? I really don't mind hearing people go, when I make a joke, grunting. Is that can, possible? If people want to unmute themselves, we can allow that. How's that sound? Yeah, that's great. Great. All right, we'll do that. Then people can unmute and they um, can uh, yeah. laugh, laugh at your bad joke. That's it. 
Well, Ray, no doubt people would have uh, you know, heard what you just said and described uh, all the different things you did early on in your ministry. The, the, no doubt the question everyone's going to have now is, how, how do I do things like that? How do I even overcome the fear to evangelize? Because it sounds like you're, you were pretty fearless. How do you overcome fear? I'm neither fearless nor fearless. Um, I fight fear all the time, always have. Uh, but there's a, there's a way to overcome your fears. And it's very, very simple. And it's biblical. And the analogy I use is that if you saw a, a pond that was maybe four or five feet deep and had big chunks of ice in it. And I said, if that pond is so cold, if you step, it's that cold. Could I get you to jump into that pond? You'd say, no way. But if you saw a four-year-old boy who fell into that pond and began to drown, you wouldn't hesitate to jump in, grab that kid and pull him to safety. Even though it was cold on your flesh, even though you were fearful, you would ignore it because love does that. Love cannot let a child drown. And the waters of personal evangelism are icy cold. Charles Spurgeon called evangelism an irksome task, an annoying task. But love cannot sit idly by and let people sink into hell. Love, perfect love, casts out all fear. So if you are overcome by fear, don't pray for less fear. Pray for more love, because that's the problem. And it's love that motivates me from A to Z, from the beginning to the end, A to Z. Um, I love people, I care about them, and I'm horrified um, uh, to, at the thought of them going to hell. Someone wrote to me yesterday, a friend, a 14-year-old son feels guilty if he walks past a person and doesn't give them a gospel tract. What should I tell him? And I said, well, guilt is good if it doesn't bring you into condemnation and make you think God is angry at you. Guilt motivates me to reach out to the lost. Almost every single day I go out on my bike with my dog. Hey, Sam. Cat! Um, that's Sam. <laughs> and I don't know if you know, but he comes with me on my bike, you see. He's the best. <laughs> yeah, that's what I need, some laughter. Um <laughs> He comes with me on my bike, and uh, and he's what gets me witnessing uh, on on the uh, on our YouTube channel. I can go up to complete strangers with a dog wearing sunglasses and have an immediate plan. They walk, they say, "Oh, I love your dog." They say, "What's his name?" I say, oh, "It's vicious," and I know it isn't. It's Sam. And women call out how cute as I go past, and I every day call back. So is the dog. <laughs> and uh, it's just, he's a great witnessing tool. But um, it's guilt that makes me get out there. So what do you mean guilt? Well, I'd like to stay home and sit in a lazy boy recliner and watch an old black and white movie all day and just eat. But I feel guilty if I do that and I identify with Paul's, I'm a debtor to all men. So my guilt isn't a slave driver. My guilt is more like a coach in a, in a, in a rugby team saying, do the best you can. Come on, come on, you can do it. Um, and that's what my, my guilt does for me. It's a, a conscience that drives me. And I want to live with a conscience that's void of, of offense towards man and towards God. And so uh, I'd feel guilty if I let children starve when I had lots of bread. And I feel guilty when I have the bread of life and people are starving and heading up to hell for want of tasting the Savior.
So it's clear that you definitely uh, want to evangelize, but for, for those listening who might not be gifted and called to be an evangelist, how would you recommend that they begin to start gospel conversations, say with a work colleague or a stranger they meet at the shops? I mean, you've got the gifting. What about them? How do they bring up everyday situations around to the gospel? How do they share the gospel? Well, the thing that's helped me more than anything else is one question, and that is this question. I can meet a stranger. Most of us can. You can see someone at the store. They're standing outside the store and say, cold, isn't it? And they say, freezing. It's been really freezing. And you've got a little conversation going with a stranger. So they say, what's your name? He says, oh, it's Fred. Say, Fred, I've got a question for you. He says, what? So do you think there's an afterlife? And I do it all the time. I don't wait for two years building a relationship. I just say, Fred, after I've met him 30 seconds ago, I got a question for you. Do you think there's an afterlife? I haven't mentioned God, Jesus, heaven, hell, the Bible, judgment, day, sin, righteousness, or any of these things that make people, them and us feel a little uncomfortable. I've just asked for his opinion. Do you think there's an afterlife? And then I let Fred talk. You might say something like, whoa, that's the question, isn't it? And I say, yeah, it really is. Do you think about it much? He says, yeah, all the time. And all of a sudden, his all the time dissipates my fears. Goliath go, whoosh, goes right down to Zacchaeus. And I think, hey, Fred's just a normal human being. He didn't kill me. He's, he's, he's got a will to live. He's thinking about life and death. So I say to him, so Fred, do you think heaven exists? He says, oh, I don't know. So are you going there if it does? Are you a good person? Mm-hmm. He says, yeah, I'm a really good person. And then you just take him through the commandments. Once you have that down, you can just go any way you want. You can talk about cricket or rugby or whatever, but it's not as hard as you think. And that's why we encourage people to watch our YouTube channel. It's coming up to 150 million views, and you can see people again and again say the same things. Do you think there's an afterlife? Ask the same question. And people have got pretty much the same response. I don't know. Do you think about it? Yeah, lots. Are you scared of dying? Yeah, I am. And it's just, it, it'll, it'll build your confidence to know that you're not going to be asked dumb questions when you, when you appeal to someone's will to live and to their conscience. Let me just mention those two things. Whenever I go to witness, I've got two confidences. One is I know this person is not a beast. They're not the product of evolution. They're made in the image of God and they have a will to live. Sam doesn't have it. He just wants to eat and sleep and chase cats. But a human being says in his heart, oh, I don't want to die. I love life. So that's on my side, his will to live. And the second thing that's an ally in this battle is his conscience. He's not like a dog. He has a knowledge of right and wrong. Animals don't set up court systems. Human beings do because we believe in justice and truth and righteousness. So when I bring up the Ten Commandments, I know that Fred's conscience is going to agree with the commandments. I'm going to see him when I say, you know, you shall not steal. He'll go, yeah, yeah, that's right. I shouldn't steal, but I have. Shouldn't lie. Yeah, I know that's wrong. Shouldn't commit adultery. Shouldn't, you know, hate someone. The the work of the law is written on our heart and the conscience bears witness. So they're the two allies that bolster my courage, help me to deal with my fears because I know I'm not alone in this battle. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, judgment to come. I have the ally of the conscience and the ally of the sinner's will to live. And that helps me have confidence. And the other thing, too, is 
you know, I can sit next to an Einstein and, and witness to him as I can some punk rocker without feeling intim intimidation. I wrote a book on Einstein, by the way, called Einstein, God and the Bible. And remember Einstein said he doesn't like it when people recognize him in public. And I thought, get a haircut. That's all he needed to do. <laughs> Cut about three feet off his sticking out white hair and no one will recognize him in public. But even though someone's a genius, when you go through the commandments, it brings them down to a level playing field. And that's my confidence. Now, what you just described sounds very different to what we hear in much of modern evangelistic method. Uh, today, we're told not to be confrontational, <laughs> we're to build a relationship and a friendship and then earn the right to witness. How would you speak to that, Ray? Because it seems like you're taking an opposite position to that which modern evangelistic methods tell us to do. Yeah, I believe in relationship evangelism. Sometimes I'll build a relationship with a stranger for one, maybe two minutes before I witness to him. And the reason there's an urgency on my part is he could die tonight while I'm sitting back, held captive by the fear of man, scared to open my mouth, and it shows mm -hmm. that I don't really care about him. In John chapter 4, it doesn't say Jesus sat on the well for two weeks building a relationship with a woman. No, he said, give me a drink. They talked about water, swung from the natural, the spiritual, and he brought up the commandment. She was living in adultery, violating the seventh commandment. Her conscience bore witness, and she ran off and started evangelizing herself. And so don't take any notice of the methods of modern evangelism. And It comes back to, I think, one cause, and that is when they're forsaken the Ten Commandments, God's law, they've lost the fear of God. They don't like to talk about hell because hell doesn't make sense. It paints God as a tyrant, and it's all because they don't understand how exceedingly sinful sin is in the sight of a holy God because they've pushed away the law. When we do that, God has a takes on a, an anthropomorphic sort of man image that he's just like us, like God told David, you thought I was altogether such a one as yourself. You thought I was like a human being. And when the law is dropped, then hell and judgment doesn't make sense. Remember Paul reasoned with Felix of righteousness, temperance, and judgment. Righteousness, which is of the law, temperance, which is a violation of the first of the Ten Commandments, intemperance, and judgment, which is by the law. And Felix trembled. Why did Felix tremble? Because suddenly hell made sense. And when you bring those Ten Commandments in, judgment makes sense. How could God not judge murderers and rapists and adulterers mm. and thieves and liars if he's good and holy? And, uh, and when the law is brought back in, then I guess pastors and preachers will start thundering the law from the pulpits, bring the fear of God back into the hearts of the church, and we'll see them involved in biblical evangelism, as we see in the book of Acts. No, I definitely think it's a very uh, challenging in our modern society and culture to hear that sort of evangelistic method. And I can see how it can be done on the streets and talking to strangers, but would you carry that same method into evangelizing your family? And I know that's been one of the questions that people have repeatedly asked as we've gone through the Way of the Master training course, is how do you best evangelize your loved ones, your friends, your families, the people that you see all the time, but not just in theory, how do we do it? But Ray, how do you witness to unsaved relatives and friends? I've got a sister who's not a Christian and I'm not exaggerating. I'd far rather preach the gospel to a thousand angry atheists than witness to my sister. I say, what is your sister? Some sort of vicious 
gangster or something? What, what's the story? No, she's very sweet. But if I upset a thousand angry atheists, which I have done, um, I lose nothing. They say, get out of here, you stupid idiot. And I say, oh, I'll see you guys later. But if my sister says that to me, I've lost everything. I've lost a relationship with someone I love. So yeah. consequently, my fear of man explodes when it comes to my sister. I lose eloquence. I'm nervous. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to upset her. I've got to be careful here and there. And so it's natural to feel like that. So what I do is I think I maybe have witnessed her once or twice, and she's got a little upset. So I just love on her, and I witness to other people's sisters trusting God to bring someone to witness to my sister. In the meantime, I show her great love. I show her my faith by my works. I send, I get gifts sent to her when it's not her birthday. I'll call her up and just say, how you doing? I show her love so that she can see my faith by my works. And that's about all you can do. And I hope that's been helpful, which it probably hasn't. <laughs> it's definitely helpful. And, uh, I think we now know who the scariest people are for you to witness to and that's family. But if we put yeah. family aside for a moment and said, right, we, we rank them number one in the fear level, who are the toughest people to witness after family? Who are the scariest ones that you've had to deal with? Okay. Uh, um, it, it's religious people, particularly Roman Catholics. I get them all the time. And uh, when I share the gospel with them, you can guarantee in the comment section on our video, YouTube videos, people say, you hate Catholics. I say, no, I don't. I love them enough to share the truth with them. If I hated them, I wouldn't bother talking to them. But Roman Catholics and religious people are normally uh, self-righteous. They're trusting in their own righteousness, their own goodness to save them. That is a real hard nut to crack. And what you have to do is get out the acts of God's law and cut into that root. Strip them of their self-righteousness if you care for them. That is, show them the leap they're trying to make isn't a two-foot leap. It's the width of the Grand Canyon, and they're not going to do it. They're not going to be saved by trying to bribe God to forgive their sins by their religious works. Um, who else? Oh, mockers and scoffers. Uh, if, I, if I witness to someone who is hard-hearted and self-righteous sometimes online, you often get people say, hey, don't forget um, not to cast your pearls before swine. And I think that's one of the most misinterpreted Bible verses in the whole of Scripture, where if someone uh, is hard-hearted towards the gospel, people say to themselves, not cast my pearl before swine, just I don't care, go away, and I'm not going to witness to you. Um, pigs or swine don't value pearls. Uh, they have no concern. They just want to eat. And an unregenerate person doesn't value the pearl of the gospel. They don't value Christ on the cross. It means nothing to them. They trample it underfoot. But the reason they don't value what Jesus is and what he did is because they don't see their sin. It's like a man on a plane. He doesn't value a parachute. He's more interested in watching the movie and eating good food, which some airlines do have, despite arguments against it. <laughs> the way he will value the parachute is if I hang him out the plane by his ankles for five <laughs> seconds. He'll come back in and say, forget the food, forget the movie, give me that parachute, because fear has done its worst. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that lady can stay. Um, 
And the reason sinners don't value the gospel is they don't see their sin. So what should I do? I shouldn't just say, I shouldn't say, go away, I'm not interested in witnessing to you. I should say, hey, you don't value Christ because you don't see your sins. You don't see your danger. And you hang them out there by, uh, you hang them out eternity by their ankles just for a short time. You say, well, do you think you're a good person? And they say, yeah, I'm a good person. Yeah, definitely. Go through the commandments and say, can you see you're in big trouble on judgment day? Yeah, I can. Where are you going to go? I'm going to go to hell. What should I do? Suddenly, this person two minutes ago who didn't value the pearl of the cross is saying, what should I do to be saved? I see it all the time. And so we don't write people off. We don't. The, the, uh, only people I write off are people who have stopped breathing. How do I know who to witness to? Is he breathing? Yeah, okay, I'll witness to him. That's, that's uh, just a fulfillment of the words of Jesus. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to gospel to every creature <clears throat> if i waited to be spirit led to go by my feelings i wouldn't wouldn't witness anything or anybody mm-hmm. you know i'm just led to sit and watch old black and white movies excuse me i've got a tadpole in my throat trying to evolve into a frog hang on <clears throat> i just killed it as long as it's not covid we should be fine <laughs> i'm not sure what the yes. social distancing rule is at the moment but now, now, Ray, I just want to just build upon something you mentioned there about the difficulties of witnessing to religious people. Uh, something that we've noticed in the UK uh, is that people here generally have a very low understanding of biblical issues. And when we watch your interviews, uh, we watch the basic training course, we, we notice that there's times where the non-believer you're speaking to seems to understand the terms and the language you're using. Uh, with the U.S. having a the blessing, really, of having greater biblical knowledge, how would you adapt your method and your style to evangelize in a U.K. context where there's less biblical knowledge? Yeah, we um, went to 13 countries in Europe about 10 years ago and <clears throat> filmed 13 episodes for, I think, season four of our television program. And I preached the gospel in London, Paris, in Belgium and 11 other countries to show that the same law and gospel have relevance. Now, when I meet someone who I think could be lacking in understanding, I say something like, you need to repent. Do you know what repentance is? And I'll explain it to them. Some might say, yeah, I do. Others might say, no, I'm not sure. Well, so it's, it's actually a it's more than confessing your sins. It's confessing and fornicate, last blaspheme, commit adultery. You know, you turn from those things. The Bible speaks of repentance unto life. So there are certain things I explain, but there are not too many because most people have some semblance of intuitive understanding of the things of God. Like, for instance, God has taken the time to write eternity on the heart of every human being. God has given light to every man. Everyone has a conscience. Conscience means with knowledge. So they have an intuitive knowledge given them by God because we're made in his image. <clears throat> Can you think of any other words that, that specifically that people in England might not understand? I guess one of the things you'd see here is we often don't have the biblical understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, so a few years ago, a survey found that many young people thought Jesus was just a curse word. Whereas if you go somewhere, especially in the southern states of the U.S., I mean, 
everyone seems to be born again 20 times and have a basic understanding of what the, the Bible teaches. How would you adapt and overcome? John, John, Lennon, John Lennon, who was from a, a music group from the last century um, called the Beatles, uh, made that mistake. He made that mistake um, when he came to the U.S., uh, it got caught, caught up on him where, where he'd said in an interview back in, in the UK, uh, we're more popular than Jesus. And, and for John Lennon, because I'm from New Zealand, I knew what he was saying because Christianity to him was the local Anglican church with almost an effeminate Anglican priest or minister and a group of elderly ladies in a building that was surrounded by a graveyard. That was Christianity to him. He didn't realize how big it was in the U.S., and uh, he made a terrible mistake when he said that because he didn't realize who Jesus was. But, you know, when it comes to Jesus, <clears throat> um, I don't explain his deity to people, especially a Muslim, because Jesus said to Peter, who do men say that I am? And Jesus, uh, Peter said, some say you're the, you know, John the Baptist, some say you're the Christ. He says, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said something insightful that's a stupid everything he said was insightful he said something wonderful he said peter flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven so it's the father who reveals to the unbeliever who jesus is um and the night that i came to christ when i understood my sin he was my he was the savior given by god to man suddenly he wasn't this teacher from 2000 years ago, he was the living savior that could save me from God's wrath. And that comes by revelation of the Holy Spirit. A very good point. Thank you for sharing that. Now I'm looking at our time and I noticed that we've only got a couple of minutes left. Something Josh, we can take a little longer if you want. When I've seen all these wonderful faces here, it's encouraged me to stay a little longer. Well, we're happy to have you as long as you want to stay. So, I mean, we've got eight hours on you, so we should be fine. <laughs> so, uh, Ray, let's let's talk about some practical witnessing tips. Uh, we've been doing the Way of the Master Basic training course, and you and Kirk in that course emphasise the use of icebreakers, the use of gospel tracks. Now, some people may think gospel tracks are outdated and quaint. <clears throat> Why should someone use tracks? What's the benefit of using gospel tracks? Well, they speak when we can't. You know, you can walk past someone in the bus stop. And their bus is coming, but if you've got a gospel track, you can be quick to the draw and say, here, here's a, a one pound or a million pound bill, a note for you. Make sure you read the back. And you just keep on walking. <clears throat> they take it and get on the bus. As the bus drives off, you see them reading it. And so gospel tracks are very powerful. John, um, Charles Spurgeon said, use striking tracks. Um, and our tracks that we have are very uh, different. I think we sold something like two or 300 million gospel tracks. And that wasn't just to one lady who's trying to reach a husband. This is to people <laughs> around the world uh, who care about the loss. So yeah, carry tracks on you. I've said many times, I, I will give a thousand dollars to anyone who finds me in public without gospel tracks. Someone saw me in a swimming pool once and went, uh-huh. I went, uh-huh. I carry them everywhere um, because I want to be ready uh, to give someone a tract if I can't talk to them. So in, in your you know, experience, you've given out, well, not just you personally, but the ministry has given away millions of tracts. 
how often do you hear testimonies of people being saved through reading a gospel track? Not enough, but we do hear testimonies. One of our staff members got saved through a gospel track. One of my um, graphic artists got saved through reading a gospel tract. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, was saved through reading a gospel tract. Um, and, and, and the point is that God uses tracts, so should we. He uses gospel tracts, which is the written word, to save people. Kirk Cameron, when he first met me, uh, was horrified. I don't know if you know of Kirk's background. He was incredibly popular in the 1980s through a uh, sitcom called Growing Pains that went for eight years. He was paid $50,000 a week for those eight years because he was such a great um, young actor and funny. I don't, he doesn't consider it funny now that he's a Christian, but it was a very popular show. <clears throat> and uh, when he when he listened to Hell's Best Kept Secret, I think the second time he called me and wanted to have lunch. So I said, let me check my calendar. And, <clears throat> and, uh, and we had lunch together, spent three hours over lunch. And then um, he stayed for at the ministry, I think, and helped us load our trucks with, you know, books and whatever that people had purchased. And then he went home and he said, when he went to the restaurant with me, he saw me giving out gospel tracts in the restaurant now kirk was so well known he would hide when he went into a into a he'd go into his disguise as he went into a restaurant i did the opposite i was giving out tracks there he had checked this and he said he was horrified he thought he's one of those and he determined, <laughs> he determined not to um get back to me but he says i couldn't help it he says i just had to call you and uh and <clears throat> over time he well, over a short time, he was converted to the use of gospel tracts, and this is what did it. He was at a restaurant with his with his wife, and it was there was such a nice waitress. He looked at her, he thought, "Boy, she if she dies in a sin, she's going to end up in hell." So he got a pen and he got a, a serviette or a napkin and started sharing the gospel. Please read your Bible, think about your eternity. And as he was writing, and he thought, "This is a gospel tract. What am I doing?" And so he was converted to gospel tracks and he would carry them. And I'd go to LAX airport with him, Los Angeles airport to travel. I remember once was just during the start of 911, the airport was insanely crowded, lines everywhere. And no one could get any, get through any door or anything. It was just, everyone was being searched. He says, watch this. He says, follow me. And I grabbed his shirt tail, so to speak. And he just walked straight up security they went, oh, come through. And a celebrity got them through like that. We'd get taken up to uh, business class all the time, first class, where they'd say, oh, Kirk Cameron, come up the front of the plane. Uh, but once I was at the airport and I watched them go to a line of maybe 50 people and start giving out tracks at the front of the line and go right through the back. And you could see everyone going, oh, it's him, it's him. And I was so proud of him. And it was such a wonderful thing to see. There we go. We have to work on getting a celebrity and... Uh... We might oh, it's easy. Yeah, we'll open up huge doors. It's That's great. Good. Well, if you know of any, send them our way. Yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> now, Ray, let, let, let's try to get some to the mechanics of what do you do when someone says something like, you know, you go to give them a tract or you go to witness to them and they say, hey, I don't believe in Jesus. That's not my thing. I'm not interested. No, thanks. I mean, rejection hurts. How do you deal with that? What do you say? <clears throat> well, I could say what I maybe say to... Uh, get someone talking so well, why do you feel like that and if they say i don't want to talk about it um i gotta tell you i am not a big fan of rejection 
I am a very proud person. I, I can give out a hundred tracks to people. <laughs> no problem. But if someone says, no, I go, could you do that to me? This really hurts. So we as human beings are wounded by rejection. And what Kirk and I used to say is you got to get back on the horse. If you're kicked off the horse, just jump back on. It's what you've got to do. Don't take rejection to heart. And I have to say that to myself. If someone says, no, I'm not interested, just go away. So I, I, I say, okay, well, have a great day. Nice to meet you. And sometimes I'll say back, nice to meet you too. Or I'll say, can I give you a gift card? That'll often, they'll go, what? And that breaks down barriers sometimes. But uh, yeah, it's a hard thing to get over. But Jesus was rejected of men in a way that uh, we cannot begin to understand. He's our example. And he said, Father, forgive mm. them. They know not what they do. And we should have that same attitude. Now, I guess one of the best ways to help overcome the hurt and the pain of being rejected is to cultivate a, a love and a passion for the Lord and also a love and a passion for the lost. How would you recommend someone go about developing such passions? Well, let me just tell you what I have done when I have, um, this is just a, a way, you might have to ask that question again to remind me, but it's just something came to mind with the whole rejection of this world and hated by people, or persecuted, someone says something nasty to you. I've had things happen to me that are, that are real nasty. Like one guy put a meme out years ago with my picture on it and then words that I supposedly said that he actually wrote. And it said something like this. If God told me to kill my children or rape my children, I'd do it instantly. If God told me to rape and kill a thousand children, I'd do it because I love God and, and I care about him. And I didn't say that. There were horrible things to say, but he said it, put my name and face on it and put it all over the internet. So consequently, I'd get atheists and some Christians say, how could you say such a terrible thing? And uh, I thought, how am I going to deal with this? So my lawyers checked him out. He was a guy in Chicago. And so we found out his address. But instead of taking him to court, taking him to court, I sent him a gift basket. Because the Bible says, love your enemies. Do good to those that despitefully use you. Uh, and and uh, say all manner of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Leap for joy. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Now, we tend to miss out what Jesus said there because it doesn't really make sense. But this is what he said in that portion I just said to you. He said, when that happens, leap for joy. And so when I got persecuted, and by the way, atheists got the police around at my home to investigate the fact that I said I'd rape my children. And they came inside and said, where's your children? And I said, they're all married with kids. <laughs> and they burst out <laughs> laughing and left. <clears throat> and anyway... So what I do is when something nasty like that happens, I leap for joy physically. Because of my age, I can only leap about six inches off the ground, maybe a foot. <laughs> I try really hard, but I do leap for joy. And it makes me laugh because Jesus said it, I do it. And I remember once I was at the ministry and I went to my office because something rotten happened and I leapt for joy. The second I landed, um, the door opened. Someone says, someone's just given the ministry 20 grand. And I thought, my, I wish I'd jumped higher. Um, but yeah, just do that <laughs> when you're persecuted, when things go wrong, just rejoice, be exceeding glad, leap for joy and carry on. It's all in God's hands and do that. Mm -hmm. So your question was how to cultivate love for people. Is that right? 
Yeah, how do you, mm. how do you maintain and cultivate a love for people to witness to them, and ultimately a love for Christ to where you desire to witness for Him? I think it's to see your own sinfulness. Um, Jesus said, Simon, I've got somewhat to say to you because you despised a woman that was washing my feet. And he said, uh, he that loves much, or he that gives, he that's forgiven much, the same loves much. And when you see your own sinfulness, what it does is it explodes gratitude in your heart because I really, I don't just believe, I know if God manifests my secret sins on judgment day, how shameful that would be and I'd be worthy of hell definitely of being damned and so I am in my heart saying continually oh thank you Lord for giving me everlasting life I can't find words of gratitude so what I can't find in words I'll find in works so gratitude is my high octane fuel that motivates me to do the will of God and God says love your enemies love everybody because he said it and because I love the Lord I'm going to do it I'm going to cultivate love. I'm going to mm. think of things to do for people because I love God because I've seen the cross. Uh, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a substitute for our sins. And so when we see our sinfulness, we're going to love God and that love will be the love of Christ that motivates us to reach out to unsaved people. Good. So we have to keep focusing on Jesus and all that he has done. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Amen. Now, Ray, you've been doing this a long time. I think I saw a DVD. You've been doing it for. It's four. been about forty minutes now. We have about forty minutes with us. No, no, you said you've been doing it open air. Time. That was like a joke. I like a joke on my part. So yeah, yeah carry I, on. I picked up. I'm, I'm used to busy with sense of humour. It's uh, it, it's it's low ball stuff, but we're used to it as Aussies. That's it. But anyway, uh, I, so, I just let me pick up on that. Um, Ken Ham and I have got a very good relationship. You know who Ken Ham is, everybody. Yes. He, he built an ark, a life-size yeah. ark in Kentucky. He loves the Lord. He's a great apologist. And him and I have been friends for years. And Australians, because they're kind of tough, manly people, don't say to other guys, I love you. They couldn't say that. I love you. They'd say something like, yeah, I like you, even if you are an idiot. That's how they'd, that's how they'd express love. And so Ken Ham almost daily insults me because he loves me. He sends insults like you wouldn't believe how short I am, how ugly I am, how dumb I am. And I know it just makes me laugh that he's motivated by love and that's how he expresses, expresses his love. I think English people might be kind of similar because Australians are English stock. They're criminals that went out. Yeah. <laughs> Our founding fathers had very strong convictions. <laughs> that's funny. That came so, from Ken Ham as well. That came from Ken Ham. That's exactly the Ken line. So, Ray, Ray you, you've definitely... So that, that's a Ken line, is it? That's a Ken line. Oh, look, hang on a minute. Our founding fathers. I'm going to quote that as though it's mine. Yeah. Well, Ray, it sounds like you've cracked our love language um, as Aussies. So uh, at least you know when we when we tease you and insult you, we're doing it because we love you. That's it. So, Ray, Way of the Master Basic Training Course, an excellent course. I've, I've taught it many times over. People have been blessed by it. Now, it is fairly old now it's been around for a little while if you were to redo it all if you were to refilm the whole basic training course is there anything you would change well i'm just going to say i'm fairly old now i've been around for a while also so i'm like a basic training course <clears throat> if there's anything i'd change uh, yeah uh, it is a, one, uh, one of the shirts i wore was not very nice i'd like to change that um but it's the same message <clears throat> um 
I, I, don't, I don't think I'd change much at all. What we'd change would be the graphics, the motion graphics, just so that it's more modern, faster moving. Uh, I'd probably move it faster <laughs> if, if we re-edited it because uh, social media has made us want to do things quickly. Um, uh, when I watch an old black and white movie, I cannot believe they'll take 60 seconds to introduce the movie, tell me what it's called, who produced it, who did the sound, who did the color. And I think, get on with it, get on with it, it's crazy. If anything takes takes longer than five seconds now on social media, we get, we get impatient. And so that's what social media's done, media's done to us. So in an effort to hold people's attention, uh, if I was going to change the basic training course, I'd speed it up. Oh, I'd suggest that you edit um, episode six, the question and answer session, uh, because there's a 19-year-old Australian who was very jet-lagged sitting in the audience uh, who wasn't paying much attention. So that was me. So if you can, you can that'd be great. And I'm going to make a note to zoom up. Yeah. <laughs> and freeze it. Yeah. And freeze it. <laughs> so, Ray, well, I've got, I've got one more question for you. And this is more in relation to open-air preaching. Uh, you've, you've spent many years preaching the gospel. Uh, you've definitely influenced me and impacted me when it comes to open-air preaching. Uh, I know from my own life I've made many mistakes in the open air, and if I could go back, I would change things and do things differently. Now, Ray, if you could go back in time and speak to your younger self who's about to set out on a ministry of open-air preaching, what advice would you give yourself? I would Definitely, and uh, some would probably agree with me, I would definitely say there is an easier way to get a crowd than what you're doing. See, for the first probably 10 years of open-air preaching, I would start off, I'd go to the local square, which is called Speaker's Corner, it's like Hyde Park, and I'd stand up and there'd be a group of people milling around some having lunch, and I'd try and grab their attention with a very gripping anecdote. I would use things like a man wanted to paint his A-frame roof, and so in an effort to reach the top, he had a very good idea. He threw a rope over the top, went around the other side, secured it in a very tight note to the bumper bar of his car, went back, tied the note, uh, rope around his waist in a very tight knot, and leaned back and began painting, thrilled with his own ingenuity. His wife, which is not privy to what he had done, came out with car keys in hand, got in the car, drove off, and pulled him over the top, seriously injuring him which isn't at all funny, I don't know why we're laughing. And then I'd say, if you believe in evolution, uh, the lesson is that you're securing yourself to something that's insecure. You're only as secure as to that which you secure yourself. I said, if you look at the teaching of the Bible and secure yourself to it, uh, things will be totally different. And I'd use anecdotes like that, icebreakers, to try and get the crowd's attention. Well, about 25, 30 years ago, I started using trivia, and that was just such a good thing for me to say, battling the fear of man. Because when I used to get up and think of an anecdote, I think I'd say this, I'll say that, hope it gets their attention. And it was kind of scary. But for the last 30 years, I can walk into a crowd, university, stand up and say, okay, anyone here, I'm giving away dollar bills. What's the capital of France? Anybody? It rhymes with Aris and begins with P. Anybody? Someone say, Paris. I say, that's right. You must be a university student, educated. <laughs> and um, then I'd ask other questions. You know, what's the capital? What's the biggest killer of drivers in the U.S. or something like that? 
And then a crowd would start gathering because I'm giving away dollar bills. And I'd say to a little kid in the crowd, what's your name? He says, Tommy. I said, that's right. Here's a dollar bill. And that got huge crowds for us in universities and in Huntington Beach and other places because it created goodwill. This is a preacher giving away money. It's almost unnatural, like water running uphill. And so that really helped me a lot because I preached the same gospel. That was just an easier way into it. And it's one that uh, dealt with my uh, fear of man in a wonderful way. Helpful. It's always good to be able to um, prepare the way of the message by doing good for people. I'm pretty sure there's uh, something in Matthew 5 about that. Good works yes, and glorifying the Father in heaven. Yes. Uh, yeah, Matthew 5, 13 to 16, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, Ray, let's let finish off. I, I want you to assume that someone here tonight, either in this Zoom meeting or who's going to be watching it online, uh, they've stumbled across, they're wanting to find some error of Ray, and you've got a couple of minutes to close out with a gospel message. What would you say if there was an unbeliever listening now? I'd say, hey, thanks for joining us. We, we're honoured to have you here. You're the reason that we exist if you didn't exist, we wouldn't bother reaching out to you. So thanks for coming in here. And I'd say, I want you to listen to your will to live. Your creator, the one that made all things that didn't happen by accident, gave you a will to live. Something in you says, I don't want to die. So every ounce of energy in you should be saying, what can I do to find out if there's a way past death? I mean, it's a grim reaper. It's going to strike me down. What should I do? Well, The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Death is payment from God for your sins. How serious is God about sin? Well, he's given you the death sentence. And you may not think you're worthy of death, worthy of capital punishment. All you have to do is look at the Ten Commandments. They ask you, how many lies are you told? You say, I've told a few. Ever stolen something? Just little things. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yes, bad habit. So you've just told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemer in God's eyes. Listen to this one. Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. That's how serious sin is in God's eyes. If you hate someone, the Bible says you're a murderer. So if you've just given the nod to say, yeah, I've done those things. Every time you've sinned, you've stored up God's wrath. You made things worse for yourself on judgment day. So what are you going to do when you're found guilty? When every secret sin comes out, all those secret sexual imaginations, the things you've done in darkness, the hatred you've harbored within your heart, it's all going to come out as evidence of your guilt. There's nothing hid that should not be revealed, the Bible says. What's going to happen? You say, man, I'll be guilty. And you'll end up in hell. All liars will have their part in the lake of fire. No thief, no blasphemer, no adulterer will inherit God's kingdom. So you're in big trouble. And if you're in big trouble in court, the only thing you can do is acknowledge your guilt and then fling yourself on the mercy of the judge. And the Bible says God is rich in mercy and he provided a savior because he's the lover of your soul. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jesus was God manifest in human flesh, taking the punishment for the sins that you and I committed. We broke God's law. Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on the cross. If you're in court and someone pays you fine, a judge can legally let you go even though you're guilty. And God can legally let us live forever because Jesus paid the fine in his life's blood, rose from the dead, defeated death, your greatest enemy. The grim reaper has had that sickle taken out of his hand by Jesus Christ. And now if you'll simply repent of sin, turn from sin, don't call yourself a Christian and continue in sin, and then trust in Jesus like you trust a parachute, 
you have the promise from the God who cannot lie. And that's what our foundation of our faith is, the integrity of God. It's impossible for God to lie. You have a promise from God who cannot lie that he'll grant you everlasting life as a free gift. He'll wash away your sins and create a clean heart in you and give you a desire to do that which is pleasing to him. That's the miracle of conversion. God will cause you to thirst after righteousness. And for a sin-loving mm -hmm. sinner, that's a miracle. And then when you get up off your knees after repenting and trusting Jesus with your eternal salvation, pick up a Bible, obey what you read. And as you do so, according to John 14, 21, Jesus will reveal himself to you. Transform your life on the inside and you'll be born again with the knowledge you have everlasting life. Amen. Well, Ray, thank you very much for sharing and uh, spending time with us tonight. We, we really have appreciated it. Thank you. Great to meet you guys and uh, look forward to meeting you when uh, Jesus comes. It's not going to be too long. Well, if you come visit us, Ray, we'll buy you some fish and chips and we'll let you preach. How's that sound? <laughs> well, like the fish and chips, you're uh, temptation. There you go. <laughs> well, hey, Ray, God bless you guys. Great to meet you all. God bless you, Ray. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.